Look, tonight is Thursday, February 29th, 2024. Yes, it is. Which means that tonight is Timo's birthday. Yeah! yeah. Now, y'all got to show Timo some love. Because his birthday only shows up once every four years. It's February 29th. Which means that his son is going to turn 21 before he does. <laughs> Y'all love Timo? I think it's less than 0.1% of all human beings have their birthday on February 29th. Timo, you're special. We love you. Look, tonight is going to be just a family gathering. We are one big family, and we always have been. Look, while we're in worship, I couldn't help think about what God has just done in this body. I've been listening to messages from 2013 by Boj Eregina called, uh, What is the Cost? If you haven't heard that, I would recommend you go listen to it. Because in 2013, Boj was contemplating the cost of sending his son to minister around the Black Sea. I've been listening to messages like One Life Changed, preached in 2005, where we're talking about planting people in the Middle East. This vision is not new. It is decades old. And this last Sunday, we stepped into it. We've been saying for years that we need to plant 100 families in the Middle East. And you know what we are now saying? We need to plant 97 families in the Middle East. Come on. And very soon, it'll be 96 after we get all of the wives and children over there together. These are good times that we're living in. And yet, what we heard on Sunday, we heard that these men were being fired like arrows to their targets. And yet, they're not just arrows, they are functioning as a bow themselves. And their challenge to us in the message, One Way Ticket, is that we must become bows as well. That we corporately must become a bow that fires many arrows, and we personally must become bows that can fire our sons just like they were fired. Which leads us to the title of our message tonight. We should probably tell them. The title of our message is Backing the Bow. Backing the Bow. We have a slide for you to tell you exactly what that means, because Gabe and I are sophisticated. We love to sit there and make slides. Thank you, Pastor Wade. So this comes from a website called wolfeniron.com and their section on how to build a bow. It says, backing the bow. Because of the immense tension placed on the backside of a bow during draw, it is often needed to back the bow to prevent the fibers from rising and eventually separating. Backing the bow is a process of attaching, usually, usually by glue, some thin strip of hide, sinew, cloth, or another wood to the back of the bow, which suppresses the tendency of a bow to break under tension. Look, let's be honest. Any of you feeling the kind of tension that results in drawing back the bow and firing arrows? Any of you in this room, like us, is feeling the tension of, Oh my God, we just sent the best in our midst from amongst us. Now what do we do? Can we handle doing this again? Can we survive sending another round of arrows to their target? Oh, we can. We will. And we will. 
The way we're going to do that is we're going to learn to back our bows. We are made to be bows that fire many arrows, but tonight we're going to learn that there is something that we need to attach to ourselves, something that's not new, but we have to have an attachment for us to survive the many firing of arrows into the Middle East. That way, we don't look around after everyone's gone and say, well, what do we do? How can we live up to the example that was set before us? Because we are all becoming bows together. Let's dig into the scripture, shall we? We're going to start in Psalm chapter 4, verse 3 through 8. Before we do that, Gabe and I have decided to give you guys a gift tonight, other than the word that we are going to preach to you. We have a present. This gift is right here. And much like the gift of God, you don't know why it's a gift until God reveals it's a gift for you. But we're going to set it right here on the stage, and by the end of tonight, you're going to look at that stack of copy paper as a gift to you. Amen? Amen. All right, let's dig in. You guys in Psalm 4? You'll recognize this passage from practicing your marriage counseling. This was given to you as a tool for when you're in those good arguments with your spouse or your team. Those kind of arguments that are trying to discern the will of God for you and your team, and you just can't seem to find which way is up. But you know, if you've practiced this, that it doesn't bear meaning just for your marriage counseling. This is a good thing to, to practice and repeat in your life. So starting in verse 3, it says, Know that the Lord has set apart the godly for himself. The Lord will hear when I call to him. In your anger, do not sin. When you are on your beds, search your hearts and be silent. Offer right sacrifices and trust in the Lord. Many are asking, who can show us any good? Let the light of your face shine upon us, O Lord. You have filled my heart with greater joy than when their grain and new wine abound. I will lie down and sleep in peace, in shalom, for you alone, O Lord, Make me dwell in safety. So as you've done many times, let's interact with this passage for a moment. Can you all do that with us? The backdrop of the psalmist is many people are saying, who can show us any good? Who can reveal to us the good things that we need? Things are so terrible right now. Who can show us what is good and right? And yet the psalmist in the midst of that backdrop He is charging himself with offering right sacrifices and trusting in the Lord. Have any of you actually been there? You're not sure. How am I going to get revelation? I'm having trouble hearing from God. Who can show me the right thing to do? And yet, I am going to offer right sacrifices. Isn't that kind of daunting? I mean, you can offer any sacrifice that you think you can, that you think you need to offer, But what God wants from you are right sacrifices. Well, who determines those right sacrifices? Do you? No. No, the Lord does. But how do you know what a right sacrifice is to the Lord? Well, it's going to cause you to ask, Lord, let the light of your face shine upon us, O Lord. And that process of seeking the Lord will have him fill your heart with greater joy Then when their grain and new wine abound. You want to know the actual fruit of seeking the Lord's face and knowing the right sacrifice? 
Oh, you're filled with joy. Come on. You have a smile on, on your face because God has shined his light on your face and you know the right sacrifice that you need to make. Now, why are we sharing this passage? It's because we just watched men be ordained to go to another land. And we're looking at each other and we're saying, how do we become like them? How? When we look at their lives, we saw that these men weren't just frivolous doing anything that they could do. These were men that were characterized by making right sacrifices. And they made those right sacrifices because they developed a pattern of applying Psalm 4 in their life. Hey, let's go to Amos 3, verse 7. Say backing the bow when you get there. For, for the Lord God does nothing without revealing his secret to his servants, the prophets. When we're considering right sacrifices... And the fact that the Lord will not hold you guiltless for offering an unworthy sacrifice, it's pretty important that we get it right. Isn't it encouraging to know that the Lord desires to share even his secrets with you? That he desires to confide in you? Now, I know some of you will be reading this and hearing this and thinking, well, I'm not a prophet. We'll solve that for you later. Right now, interact with the fact that your God wants to tell you the right sacrifices to ask. But it has to be uncomfortable. The ability to hear from God is always just inside of the uncomfortable zone. Then you begin the process of doing the uncomfortable. But if we stay complacent, if we allow ourselves to deny the gift that he wants to give us, well, friends, we'll never find it even though he desires to give it to us. We have to look for the secrets of God that we might offer him the sacrifices that he desires and are pleasing to him. So like us, many of you are like, well, what do we do now? Where do we start? What do we do? We have to offer right sacrifices and we have to begin now. Well, understand that the Lord doesn't do anything without revealing his plan to his people. He wants to reveal to you what he wants to do. He could do anything he wants when he wants, but he chooses to reveal his will to you. Deuteronomy 29, 29 is a favorite of this house. Yeah. It says the secret things belong to the Lord our God, but the things that are revealed belong to us and to our children forever that we may do all the words of this law. So many are asking, who can show us any good? Jo uh, one of Job's friends in the book of Job asked, who can know the mind of God? Who can know the thoughts of God? Mm. Well, God wants you to know what's in his mind. And when you actually know what's in the mind of God, it belongs to you. And not just you, it belongs to you and your children forever. So that you may do what? So that you may do all the words of this law. What God wants to do is he wants to give you revelation. He wants to speak to you his will so that you know the right sacrifices that you must do, which is in accordance to what he wants from you and your family. Don't think for a second that if you kneel down and pray and actually ask the Lord that he will not show you what he wants of your life. 
He wants to reveal His will to you. He wants to speak to you personally what your role is in this body and what you must accomplish on this earth. In fact, Proverbs 25 verse 2 pretty much sums up that process pretty well. Say backing the bow when you get there. It is to the glory of God to conceal things, but the glory of kings is to search things out. Church, I said I'd solve the prophet issue for you. Men, in this room, are you the king of your household? Does your God have secrets that he wants to share with you that will belong to you and your children's children forever? Then it makes you a king to search them out. It makes you a king to look for the next right thing to sacrifice to your God. It makes you a king to find the next gem for your family. None of us would be here if there was not a king searching the word, finding the right sacrifice, and laying the foundation we now stand on. And it is our job to be able to do this for every generation that comes after us. This is why we respect our pastors so much. They labor in the word as kings to find the sacrifices they need to make for us. They're not sacrificing it for themselves. They sacrifice it to benefit us. Their labor of love is they kill themselves to bring you life. As Jackie Bullinger always has said, it is death to the giver, but life to the receiver. And it is a kingly call to search for the right sacrifices of our God. Come on, Marlon, say, long live the king. Long live the king. Y'all say it with them. Say, long live the king. Long live the king. What makes us kings is the king-like process of searching for the glorious things of God that he has hidden. It makes us a king. Don't let anyone tell you that you don't have a right to that process. You have a right to hear from God, and that doesn't belong to anybody else. That belongs to you. God wants you to become a king with him, and how you do that is you are seeking your father. You are leaning on him for the next bit of revelation that you need for your day. And that is what makes you a king, is that process of searching out the scripture. Do not give up that right to any thought, any emotion, anybody else. It is your right to hear from God. And when you do, it belongs to you. You stand on that revelation. What makes kings in our midst are men who hear from God, seek Him for the deep things, and then when they've actually heard from God's throne, they stand on what they know God has revealed to them. That is what makes us kings. That's what made the kibbutz kings. That's why every time they entered the room, we said, long live the king. But that's not just for them. That is for you in this room, too. Fathers, it is your job to teach your sons how to mind things out of the Word of God. Husbands, it's your job to teach your wife how to become a queen by seeking through the deep things of God. Don't fall into the trap of telling and demanding everything that your children should do. You should demonstrate and then seek with them and show them how to mine precious revelation from God. Look, we're going to get into Exodus chapter 3, verse 10. And we're going to see all of you agree with what we're saying up here. All of you want it. And yet, there's a reason why we don't do it all of the time. What we're going to share with you is not a new revelation. We realized as we're studying these scriptures that they were actually preached to us seven years ago. We heard this same message seven years ago. And when we heard it this week, we were like, man, that's amazing. I feel so free. 
I feel so enlightened and free in the, in the presence of God to seek him. What is this new teaching I've heard? And yet, why have we not done it in the last seven years? Why did it feel freeing to us this last week? Well, there's something that gets in the way whenever we're trying to back our bows and fire more arrows. We're going to start in Exodus 3, verse 10. We're going to learn from Moses. Do you guys love Moses? Do you appreciate Moses? We love oh, Moses. yeah. Moses was a man of God. And we almost kind of put Moses on a pedestal into a realm that we can never become and never be like. But we want to start where Moses started in his interaction with God. This is Exodus chapter 3, verse 10 through 11. So now go. I am sending you to Pharaoh to bring my people, the Israelites, out of Egypt. But Moses said to God, who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the Israelites out of Egypt? Wow. But who am I, God? You see, God is speaking to Moses about the privilege of being his instrument, about being his man who's called to perform his will. And what is Moses' first statements about? His first statements are about himself and his own deficiencies. You see, the telling part of this whole dialogue, like you said, is that Moses is asking, who am I, before he ever asks the question to God, who are you? He's staring at a visible representation of God. He's having a holy moment with God, and yet Moses is more self-conscious than God conscience. Yeah, I want to take a minute on that first, just, just quickly. Get it. We have all experienced this in everyday life. The moment that the Lord tells you to do something righteous, what is the first thought that comes to mind? Wherever you failed last, what's the first thing that comes to mind? I don't know what to say to them. I don't know how to do this. The first thing that comes to mind is always our own deficiencies, and it hurts to read this verse where Moses, the man of God, the one that is like the prophet to come, where he started was asking a brutal question. It's hard to hear because we do it every day and it hurts to hear Moses say it because we know what he will become. Perhaps if we started acting like we were already what the Lord has promised us and told us we would be, we'd be able to get our eyes off of ourselves in that moment. Oh, come on. Hey, you want to know why I think Moses said that, though? Where was he? He was in the desert. Why was he in the desert? He was running. Why was he running? He killed a man. He was in the desert 40 years because he was in fear that he made a mistake and that he would get caught in that mistake. He was running, and he was on the run for 40 years in the desert because he was afraid that his sin would be found out. Oh, come on, interact with that church. Where did God choose to meet him? In the desert. Hiding for 40 years. And yet, what's on his mind? The 40 years of his disobedience. And he's looking at God and he's saying, Who am I? Well, quite frankly, that doesn't even matter who Moses is. It matters who God is and what God wants from Moses. But he can't stop thinking about his own failures because he hasn't quite dealt with them 
He hasn't quite dealt with them in the presence of God. You see, we all know that it's the glory, it's the glory of kings to search out a matter. But what stops us from doing it? It is the time of disobedience in your life that you're always drawing back to and saying, I'm not worthy to meet with the Father now because of what I did in the past. Mm. Clearly, God is speaking to you now saying, seek my face. Seek me. I want to show you the right sacrifices you need to make. And yet, what happens between your ears when you're driving tomorrow morning and you want to get into the Father's presence, you want to pray through the tabernacle, but you can't stop thinking about the mistake you made yesterday. Church, it was never about you. It's about the God that is calling you and wants to give you right sacrifices. This is what it means to back your bow. It's to add to you your intimate relationship with the Father where he's showing you who he is. Now, the revelation of who God is to you as an individual is the beginning of being able to lead from a place of security and confidence. Man, don't you want that? Yeah, it starts with knowing who God is for you. You can read all the books you want in the world. You can listen to Elder Adam. You can listen to Pastor Spence talk about who God is to them. But you'll always be leaning on who God is to them if you don't know who God is for you. This is the start of being able to have security and confidence in your calling. Notice the next part of the dialogue in Exodus 3.13. Say backing the bow. Moses said to God, suppose I go to the Israelites and say to them, the God of your fathers has sent me to you. And they asked me, what is his name? Then what shall I tell them? God said to Moses, I am who I am. This is what you are to say to the Israelites. I am has sent me to you. See, church, we can, uh, we can start to see Moses' internal dialogue starting to uh, inexplicably come through. Yeah. He's, uh, he's looking at the task of the Lord, and uh, never with my wife, but I've experienced where giving her a task, she may begin to hypothetically work through all of the what-if scenarios in the direction that we're heading. Moses is doing this with his husband. The Lord told him to go and free the Israelites. It's like, but what if they ask this? And what if they ask this? And what if they ask this? The irony in all of this is the very sight that drew him into this interaction was a supernatural bush that was burning but could not be burned up. And now, after receiving a godly calling, a heavenly charge, he is trying to rationalize how he can do it himself. The worst part of this kind of insecurity is it leads a man to either lack transparency altogether to pretend like it's not happening, or he'll move to self-mortification so that he can convince others that he shouldn't even have to try. There is, of course, an answer to this. It was never about you. It's not about who you are. It, it was never about you. It's about who God is. God's answer is oddly calming. And this has been one of my favorite parts of going through this. What more, what stronger statement of personal identity and confidence in who you are could it be to say, I am who I am? Yeah. And as we interact with I am who I am, we realize that I am who he is making me to be. I am what he's promised me to be. And when we interact with the I am who I am, well, we become whatever he wants us to be. 
Are y'all catching that? When you truly trust the I am who I am, then you can say, I am whatever I am as well, but he chose me. All right? Who in here has had a supernatural revelation of the king of kings? Hey, you from time to time fallen into despair and doubt because you're game planning and saying, what if, what if? Even though he chose you when you were a worse sinner than you are now? Yeah, you see, it's always that self-conscious nature inside of you that causes you to game plan and say, what if? God's telling me I'm going to be married, but what if I fail in the courtship process? What if I fail in marriage counseling? What if I can't make it? What if I don't have the boldness to approach that girl and she just thinks I'm funny for asking? What if I move out of my parents' house and I'm not sure how I'm going to make it? I'm not sure where I'm going to live. I'm not sure I'm going to get to work. All the... Lord's telling me that I'm called to be a teacher in this room. Come on, Mike, you can be honest. Hey, at least he's speaking up and interacting with him. The Lord's telling me that I'm going to be sent into a swan. But what if my wife is not capable? It doesn't matter the what if scenario. If you are looking at the I am who I am, you can trust that you are whatever you are, and he will make you into what you need to be. Amen. See, that's when your trust falls less on what you are capable of doing and more on what he is able to make you into. You see, there's a real problem if you find yourself constantly needing encouragement from other people for you to walk in what God has already said you're going to walk in. Get it. There's a serious issue When you have to rely on the pastors to say, just tell me what to do next. Your interaction with the face of God should be driving you to the next right sacrifice, which is in line with what you know he's calling you to do and what you know he's able to make you into. If your identity can be given to you by a man, then it can be taken away by a man. And in the acts that we are going to endeavor in, we are going to face many, many who try to steal your identity and the identity of this body. And the fact that God gave it to us means that it cannot be taken from us. You want to know the difference between a man who can look someone in the eye and tell them exactly what the Lord wants for them? And the difference between a man who can attend church is one who has actually met with God gained revelation from him and found his identity and who the Lord says he is, then that man can lead out nations. Look, we're preaching to ourselves tonight. I was with you guys kneeling at this altar on Sunday asking, Lord, what do I do? What do I do next? But you know what I realized? That I had become completely comfortable depending on the kibbutz, going to them, asking, hey, what do you think about my calling? When do you think my calling is going to happen? When do you think... I am going to get to the place to where I can function. The kibbutz, amazing. All of our pastors here are amazing. Their answer is always, you're already ready. Just start functioning in what you're called to do. And yet, here I am with my friends leaving and we're staying. And I'm asking myself, what do I do next? You know what I'm reminding myself? I had a revelation of the king of kings long before I met the kibbutz. And just because I started leaning on them a little bit doesn't mean I can't have that same revelation with the King of Kings while they're gone. And by the way, we have three godly pastors that have just been given to us as gifts. And we have our old OG pastors that are full of wisdom. OG. 
But you know what makes them the OG pastors? You know what makes these new pastors amazing? It's the fact that they have a daily relationship with the Lord, yes. and they are seeking His face and trusting the I am that I am. And they've gotten so good at it that they can do it for you as well, but they shouldn't have to do it for you for you to survive. They shouldn't have to do it for you for you to be able to function like the kings you're called to be. So in Exodus 4, we're moving on. To reassure Moses, God gave Moses three signs. A staff, a snake, a staff turning into a snake, a hand becoming leprous, water turning into blood. Those are incredible signs and testimonies. The Lord loved Moses despite how Moses was feeling in the moment. And he loves this church. Yes. He's given us many signs of affirmation and approval through the years. Hasn't he not? He has, which that was a double negative. I don't know, don't quite know how to respond to that. He has given us many signs of affirmation and approval throughout the years. Listen to Moses' response to that in Exodus 4, verse 10, though. After having a confirmation and approval from God, he says, Moses said to the Lord, Pardon your servant, Lord. I have never been eloquent, neither in the past nor since you have spoken to your servant. I am slow of speech and tongue. It's a pretty eloquent excuse. Isn't it kind of easy as a third-party observer in this story to get frustrated with Moses? Yes. Yeah. He keeps bringing up reasons that he is inadequate. He keeps trying to back out of the responsibility by either bringing up his own inabilities or... By just shying away and ignoring what God wants to say. But you want to know what? At least he was being honest. Amen. Amen. At least he was vocalizing his fears to the Lord. At least he was in front of God telling the Lord how he actually feels and allowing the Lord to speak to his heart. Don't make me ask the last time you've done that. You might have done that to the pastors. You might have vocalized your fears and then say, just tell me what to do, I'll do it. And then not done it after they told you what to do. <laughs> Been guilty of that. But Moses is in front of God. And he's being honest with the Lord. Yeah. You see, each time that God gives him a, reassur a reassuring solution to help him overcome his concerns, including a brother, partner, co-worker with different skill sets to complement Moses' own, none of these things were the point. God was always going to help Moses in those ways. Yeah. He told Moses, Aaron is already on the way. God was already planning to help Moses in his insufficiencies. And yet, you know these signs were predestined and foreshadowed Christ. So what was the point then? What was the point of all of that? God wanted Moses to face his own fears and inadequacies and be persuaded that the I am who I am was enough. Amen. God was pointing. He was driving Moses to face his own fears and his own insecurities. Be honest with us. How many of us, including myself, avoid getting into the Father's presence on a daily basis because we don't want to face our fears? We want to act like we have it all together. We want to say, hey, how you doing, brother? Oh, I'm good. Even though you have a frown on your face visibly. Liar. Which, by the way, 
If you're walking around with a frown on your face all of the time, it means that you are not interacting with God on a daily basis. This is true. I didn't say that. The Word says it. Those who look to Him are radiant. They're radiant because they're looking at the face of the Father and they're having their own fears crushed in His presence before they meet with any man. When you see a man that's full of joy, you can know that that man's been dealing with the Father, that he has been having his fears and insecurities crushed. This is what God was drawing Moses to do. He is leading him through this process because he wants to nail his fears. He wants Moses to walk in the right sacrifices that he'd always call him to do. I wonder what fears does he want to crush in here tonight? Oh, not the fears of performance. The fears of just constantly getting before your father's face and hearing from him. The fears of your inabilities being crushed by a good father, not a bad father, a good father. Hey, let's go to Exodus 4, 11. Backing the bow. The Lord said to him, who gave man their mouths? Who makes them deaf or mute? Who gives them sight or makes them blind? Is it not I, the Lord? Now go, I will help you speak and will teach you what to say. Well, church, this really is the point, isn't it? You have to daily depend on the Lord to help you, teach you, and be enough for you. Y'all remember a message called Majority Rules? It'd be worth listening to. You and the Lord in any situation are the majority. You have exactly what you need no matter if it is just you and God in the desert or surrounded by an enemy nation. If you depend on him, nothing is impossible. Come on. You have to do this with confidence, facing the fact that your body is as good as dead. You, in fact, do not have what it takes. If you did, there would be no glory in it for him. This death of the self-consciousness is so that the God-consciousness can reign inside of a man. While at first Moses does not wish to accept his great mission to redeem his enslaved people because he mistrusts his ability to do so. He realizes that the one who is faithful is the one who promised it to him. And so he has to accept with full courage, energy, the decision that the Lord has set in front of him. And Moses is now ready to confront the other end of the spectrum. Come on, isn't this good? Moses, after he's accepted his inability, after he's looked at God and said, you're right, Lord, I don't have the ability, but you are able to do it inside of me again. He is now full of courage. One more time. He's now full of energy. He's working towards the goal that God told him. He's not sitting around waiting for someone else to tell him what to do. And he's full of decision. He's full of decisiveness. He knows exactly what to do in the moment because he's accepted what God has called him to do. And he's accepted the fact that God is able to perform it in him. Come on. Look at what he does. Look at what Moses is being transformed into. Verse 10, uh, Exodus 10 verse 3. So Moses and Aaron went to Pharaoh and said to him, This is what the Lord, the God of the Hebrews says. How long will you refuse to humble yourself before me? Let my people go so that they may worship me. You see, on, on the one hand, Moses at one time considered himself too inadequate to do what God requested. And on the other hand, he's now confronting a man 
that believes he is too competent to have listened to what God says. Both of these things are dealing with the kind of insecurity that does not seek the Lord's face and doesn't know the right sacrifice that you have to make. Both considering yourself too inadequate and considering yourself too competent, both are signs of insecurity. Pharaoh is actually appearing self-reliant because he is afraid to look weak. Yeah. The moment that his, the moment that God relents on Pharaoh, what does he do? He hardens his heart again. Man, how many times is God driving you to let go of your self-competentness and cause you to become desperate, cause you to become contrite and seek his face, and yet, no, I don't need to do that. I know exactly what to do in this situation, and you don't. Is it impossible for someone to encourage you in the direction that the Lord has already given you because you feel like you're being patronized or considered weak? You see, both of these things get in the way of you making right sacrifices, and that comes from hearing the Lord. Both talking about your inadequacies or trying to appear self-competent before everyone else. See, these are two ends of the same string. Humility is neither thinking of yourself more lowly or more highly than God does. A man that thinks more lowly may express his fears to avoid a task, and a man that thinks too highly of himself will conceal his fears, pretending self-reliance to avoid the same task. But the task is the same. There is something that God has called you to do, and you can neither avoid it by talking about your inability before God or being self-reliant that you don't need to humble yourself to do what God's actually calling you to do. Look, I have to admit, I have been both men in my life at many times. Mm -hmm. Me too. The goal here is to face the fear, insecurity, and real inadequacies, but esteem God as able to perform his will through you. Amen. Moses did it, and Pharaoh did not. Moses proved it with his obedient actions, and Pharaoh only proved disobedience through his actions. Let's take a look at this process and how it formed Moses further in Numbers 12, verse 3. Backing the bow when you get there. Now Moses was a very humble man, more humble than anyone else on the face of the earth. Now, we have laughed many times at how you can write this about yourself. But it's because we, uh, we don't understand humility properly. I think one of the reasons that Moses was so highly esteemed as the most humble man on the earth is that he understood his vulnerabilities, but he also learned to trust the Lord to work through it anyways. He didn't pretend he was without need, and yet didn't yield to his weaknesses and didn't esteem his weaknesses to be bigger than his God. He moved forward in confidence with the Lord. This kind of security makes for the best leaders. He is both bold enough to face down imperial Egypt in the throne room and look Pharaoh in the eye and tell him what God requires of him. And he's also humble enough to accept the advice of his father-in-law Jethro. Well, let's look at that in Exodus 18, 17. Moses' father-in-law. Your husbands have some father-in-laws in the room? I got a good one. 
Moses' father-in-law, praise God, brother. Moses' father-in-law replied, What you are doing is not good. You and these people who come to you will only wear yourselves out. The work is too heavy for you. You cannot handle it alone. You see the contrast between the balls to face Pharaoh? Yeah, I said it. The chutzpah to face Pharaoh? And the realization that his father-in-law was right? Y'all hear me? The realization that his father-in-law was right and the work was too heavy for him can only be understood in the light of godly humility that esteems God as enough for the God-ordained task. When you have a revelation from God, you neither have to try to be humble, nor do you have to try to be some great, amazing man before God. When you have a real revelation from God, and you know the right sacrifices that you need to make to accomplish His will in your life, and you know that He can help you through those right sacrifices, you don't need to look at other men and say, Nah, I got all that. I got, that's good. You can stop talking now. I don't need to hear what you think you need to impart in my life. But you also don't need to cower before men saying, well, I'm not really sure that, that you know, that task is too impossible. That's too difficult for me. I, I, I've never done anything like that before. I'm going to have to pray about that. Yeah, we're not talking about a sliding scale here either. We're not trying to find a balance. We're not trying to find the middle. We're trying to get off of the scale altogether. No amount of insecurity and no amount of <laughs> fear in our lives is okay. We want the God-ordained identity and security from him. And insecurity has been taught as just fear and faithlessness. So it doesn't really matter what form it shows up in. We want to eradicate it from our lives. Yeah. We're going to move quickly because we're working towards a close. But if you have a habit of talking yourself down before you're about to give a revelation, that needs to stop. Stop it. You know all that shows? Is that you really haven't heard from God about what you're about to say. Doesn't mean you can't hear from God. Just means you didn't take the process of, of becoming a king and searching it out. Or you did, but you think that you're really better than what God has told you to say. So you're just going to talk it down because you think you have better things to say later on. Both of those things are wrong and it has to stop. Don't ever talk down about your team. Don't ever talk down about your wife to alleviate what you are called to become. Don't sit there and say, you know, I've done this before. You get in a habit of talking about the bad things that are going on, and you feel like that somewhat alleviates the need to become more than what you are. Because if everyone knew it's just this bad, well, then I don't have to rise up to the occasion and actually forge something here. No, we have to have godly vision. But when you have godly vision, it'll cause you to be humble. It'll also cause you to fight for what you know God has given you. And you don't need somebody kicking you in the butt all of the time to tell you what to do next. You know what to do. All right. Before we leave the Moses arena, we're going to look at one more passage. Numbers eleven twenty nine. But Moses replied. By the way, on that last note, just for a second. This is why when we're telling our testimony... We don't sit around and talk about how bad of, a, bad of sinners we were. No. A lot of us like to do that because we think that if we do that, we can kind of go, well, I'm pretty good right now the way I am. I don't need to grow any further. I was wicked then, and look what God has done in my life now. Mm. No, we talk. what do we talk about, church? 
we talk about what we experience in his presence and what he first revealed to us. We do that because we're reminding ourselves of what he is able to make and what he is calling us to become. All right, Numbers eleven twenty nine. Moses replied, are you jealous for my sake? I wish that all the Lord's people were prophets and that the Lord would put his spirit on them. Joshua tried to get Moses to stop Eldad and Medad from prophesying. A man that had not faced his insecurities and decided God was enough might have uh, reacted a little differently than Moses did. The earlier Moses might have said, oh, good, they're doing it. Now I don't have to. <laughs> On the other hand, yeah. Moses could have shut them down and stopped them, which would be giving in to fear and insecurity, thinking that they were a threat to him. Oh, oh I am the prophet who spoke to Pharaoh. Moses had dealt with his own fears, inadequacies, and insecurities so that he knew what the Lord had accomplished through him was because the Lord did it, this allowed him to be happy for others' accomplishments and want everyone to experience exactly what he had experienced. Boy, that's good. You guys enjoying it? We have a few more passages to get to, and this is getting good. And then we're going to give you a gift. We're going to go to Psalm 51, verse 17 through 19. I want you to see this and, and realize what had happened in David's life to get David to, to write this. This is a song, y'all. This is a song that David would sing. In verse 17, he says, The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. Hey, how do you offer right sacrifices? Well, sacrifice number one is a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. Does that really mean that you walk around weeping all of the time? No. What that means is that you are constantly broken about the distance between you and God and you want to seek him further. You want to be called up higher and you are seeking his face every day to hear what he says and you're being renewed in his presence. It's becoming dependent on him on a daily basis. But how did David get to this point? He did not go off to war when kings go to war. He forgot what God had called him to be and become, and mm. he ended up sinning. But God's a good God. He sent a, he sent a prophet named Nathan to remind David of who he's supposed to be. Come and on. now David is now offering right sacrifices before God. He says, a broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. Do good to Zion in your good pleasure. Build up the walls of Jerusalem. Build up my home. Build up my family. Build up my church. Then you will delight in right sacrifices, the LSB and ESV says. You will delight in right sacrifices, mm. in burnt offerings and whole burnt offerings. Then bulls will be offered on your altar. Do you want to offer right sacrifices? Then you have to learn to offer the first right sacrifice, and that is a daily broken, dependent heart before the Lord. It's incredible to me reading this passage because David was not exactly in his right mind when this was spoken to him. In fact, the judgment on his life, the judgment for his sin, is that one of his sons would die. But what did David do after that happened? 
he got up and went into the temple to worship Lord, the Lord. You see, the period of mistakes did not keep David from what he knew he must do. I have a feeling that many of you in this room right now walk around with so much guilt and shame, not because you're wicked, not because you're just a sinner, it's because you know you need to be seeking the Lord more and you're not. And it's leading to other bad habits in your life. Wives, you're texting your husbands all of the time. I don't like that the other women in the house used my dawn when they bought pledge. What do you think I should do about it? Well, how about you seek the Lord and ask him what to do about it, and then you get with me with what you feel like the Lord's telling you. You see, but we have these bad habits in our lives because we do not seek him and do not have a broken and contrite spirit, and it leads to other bad habits. But the moment that you realize the answer, that you have to seek God and seek his face, don't let that period of disobedience stop you for one for a second. See, a lot of us walk around all of the time feeling like we cannot seek God, like he won't hear us because we haven't been seeking God, and it's not God's fault. Don't put that on him. Remember what we shared earlier? He wants to reveal his plan to you. It's not his fault that we have hard hearts. It's our job to get in his presence and help him, or ask him to help us to make our hearts soft again so that we can have a revelation and we can know the right sacrifices we are to make. You know one of my favorite, you know what, you know what's one tough thing about watching my brother Judah leave? Well, it's because every time I rode in the truck with him, the first thing we did when we got in the truck is we prayed through the tabernacle together. Yep. A lot of times it was Judah praying and me just saying amen and praying in tongues. You want to know why that is? Because I didn't feel like I was capable of seeking my father's face like he was. <laughs> It's not true at all. God doesn't feel that way about me. It's just because there are times that go so far where I don't seek his face, and then I just feel like a wayward son who's guilty because I haven't been seeking his face. That's not what God wants for you tonight, and tonight we're going to change that. Listen to what happens to Simon Peter and what he becomes when he has a revelation of God in Matthew 16. Start in verse 17, backing the bow when you get there. And Jesus answered him, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I tell you, you are rock, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. See, insecurity lessens its grip when revelation teaches you who you are and what you are to do for your Father. The foundation of a calling is backing your bow with faith in what God has already said to you. Men of God must move away from the insecurity by taking on the identity that their father has given them. See, Peter and the revelation, we know that the church was built on the revelation and not on the man. But when you get your identity from God, when you get a supernatural revelation from him, it starts to interfuse with you so much so it's almost impossible to tell the difference between what is just the natural man and what the Lord has supernaturally placed in him. Peter became the rock because he received the revelation of the rock. Come on. Think about Noah or Abraham for a second. Think about how inglorious that call really was. 
Yeah. God spoke to Noah to build a boat for 120 years. Didn't have, we don't have any record of pastors in his life. We don't have any record of anybody telling him that he needs to keep doing it. And yet he had a revelation of who God was, what he wanted of his life, and who Noah was supposed to be. Yeah. And he did it without wavering in that calling. One of the marks that you've actually heard from God is that you do what is inglorious and you do it without wavering. You see, the real test is, is the real test on whether or not you've heard from God is is it exalting to your flesh or is it crucifying? Mm. See, revelation secures you no matter what. And the real test to that revelation is does it exalt your flesh or does it crucify you every day? If it's exalting to your flesh, it's not from God. What we're not saying to you tonight is that you could just stand up and say, well, they're saying I, I, I can only hear from God and it's my responsibility and I've heard from God so I can do whatever I want. Get saved. I knew some missionaries in Africa who had a ministry named Touching the Nations and they heard from God to name their children's ministry Touching Children. I'm sorry, but you did not hear from God that. Nope. You need to ask yourself, is, is your revelation exalting to your flesh? None of what God told me to do exalts my flesh in, in one bit. I never wanted to be tied down in one place in, in any part of my life. I wanted to be like Reinhard Bonnke and preach to crowds. But that's self-glorifying to my flesh. The real call of God in my life has caused me to crucify everything over and over and over again. But you want to know how I know it's from God? One, it's crucifying. And two, I can't stop doing it because I know that he spoke it to me. And I will never quit because I heard him uh, audibly say it to me. Okay? A great deal of security comes from doing the difficult because your father told you to do it. Okay? That's how you back your bow. When you receive a real revelation, like Peter, it becomes an offensive weapon that hell cannot prevail against. When your brothers, the church team, confirm it, this makes the war effort more effective and easier to maintain. Each of you needs a genuine relationship based on your friendship with God. But this revelation will provide you with the next few steps. And the team that is around you The team of pastors will act as a confirming agency that strengthens your commitment to him and to each other to accomplish the task. But the team is not there to tell you what you're called to do or what you should do. If you find yourself in a position where the team must tell you what to do, then someone has not heard from God in that situation. And I found usually it's not the team. It's the person that doesn't know what to do next. Okay? The team is supposed to confirm what God has already spoken to you and what they see you doing in your life. Let's look at James 3.16. We only have a few passages left. For where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there will be disorder and every vile practice. But the wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, open to reason, full of mercy and good fruits, impartial and sincere. Church, we're not going to camp on this forever. This is a valid test for our hearts at all time. Is this ambition from God or not? One of the ways I like to ask that is, is this what I already wanted to do? And the Lord is now confirming what I already wanted to do. 
Or is this absolutely crucifying and I would rather go hide in my truck or my room somewhere than do it? That's a pretty good test for us. Every human heart wants recognition and greatness. The call of God is always sacrificial. The man that has actually heard from God shows his security by the lack of selfish ambition and jealousy. He is pure, peaceable, gentle, open to reason, full of mercy and good fruits, impartial and sincere. This is the harvest of righteous revelation. A supposed revelation that causes a man to display selfish ambition and disorder is not a genuine revelation. Insecurity is not part of a genuine revelation. In other words, if you have a genuine revelation about what God has called you to do, that does not interfere with the other revelations around you. It actually joins with it. You don't need to fight for your own calling if you've actually heard from God. You can stand with other brothers and say, hey, I think what you heard completes what I've heard. Or I think what you've heard actually balances with what I've heard, and we're called to do it together. Not sit there and say, well, this is what I've heard, and this is what I'm sticking to, and you can just go over there and pray. Or, yeah, 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 I heard that, but I'm too busy fulfilling what God told me. No. If you've actually had a genuine revelation from God, then you do not need to display selfish ambition, or you do not need to be in disorder with the church or with the body to prove that your revelation is from God. What does a genuine revelation do, though? A genuine revelation secures a man in a way that eliminates competition and factions from him. God has said it, so the man is not insecure about it. Time is only an opportunity to display faith. This is what causes you to fight for other revelations in the room. This is how you back your bow in being able to fire many arrows. You know that God has spoken to you the outcome of your life and what you must become. Then you can start to fight for the other revelations in the room. And fighting for those other revelations actually fulfills the revelation God has given you. Man, that's good, isn't it? Any of you guys want to be secure tonight? You want to eliminate competition? then you got to get a real revelation from God. Look, we have three passages to close with, and the worship team can come. Colossians 1, 9 through 12 is about Paul speaking to the Colossian church, saying that we have not ceased to pray for you, asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding. He's pleading with them. That they can be filled with the knowledge of God. What God requires. What is the next right sacrifice that they have to make for their children, for their wives, for their body that they're engaged with. So as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord. How do you do that? What did the Lord do? Did he come on this earth and fight for his own will? No, he died to secure you on better footing. He was not an insecure son. He was secured by his father daily in his interactions for him, and that allowed him to die for you. Bearing fruit in every good work, increasing in the knowledge of God, being strengthened with all power according to his glorious might, for all endurance and patience and joy, giving thanks to the father who could qualify you, no. who has qualified you in the inheritance of the saints. Are you life. saying that we're already qualified and qualification isn't about our ability, but what we're really looking at in lack 
is a lack of receiving revelation and strengthening from our God to do what he has qualified us to do, if we step out to do exactly what he made us to do, then we have access to all the power from our God to accomplish it. Are you actually saying that I'm already qualified? Yes. Are we saying that you're actually qualified for this next season? Yes. That you're qualified to bend the bow over and over again for other people? Yeah. You've already been qualified. But you know who doesn't know that? The man that's not interacting with the Father on a daily basis. That man won't feel qualified because he's not talking to the great I am. And he doesn't realize that God chose me anyway. He can do it in me. Hey, what does Romans 12:1 say? I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as living sacrifices, as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual act of worship. Do not conform to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. For... By the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you, do not think of yourself more highly than you ought to think, but think with sophron, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. Church, I hope by the end of this, when you hear sober judgment, you are no longer thinking, oh, I need to stop being so prideful. Oh, woe is me. Oh, how lowly I am. But that you can actually view yourself with sober judgment from the viewpoint of God's mercy, that he is the one who is enabling you, and he can give you the real revelation to stand the test of time. Well, when you think of that kind of sober judgment, it would be very hard to be insecure, wouldn't it? All right, our last passage for you is Ephesians 2, verse 10, and then we're going to give you your gift. It says, For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus, for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Church, how are you going to know those good works? How do you know the right sacrifice that you have to make? We've had examples before us of men who are constantly making the right sacrifices. Not busybodies, running around doing tons of different things but accomplishing nothing, but making the right sacrifices. That is what you and I are called to become. That's what we have to become to back our bows so we can survive firing arrows over and over again. Our gift for you tonight is this stack of copy paper. What we want to do together with the body is if you're feeling the need to get into the Father's presence, to crucify your insecurity, your fears about what, he's knowing you, he's, what you know he's called you to do, then we want you to come up here you can come to the altar. We don't want to have a big repentance session. I haven't been seeking the Father, so I'm going to cry until I feel good about my performance. <laughs> what we want is everybody to make a decision tonight. We want everybody to realize whether you've been acting in selfish ambition, whether you've been acting in insecurity that causes you to just think on your inadequacies, we want you to come here and make a decision that I am going to crucify my fears daily daily before the Father. I want him to reveal to me what he has already spoken about my life, and I want to him to reveal to me every day the right sacrifices I need to make to do what he said. These are the kind of revelations that 
weren't a prophecy from someone else. Yeah. It was not a good point from a message that was a blessing to you. Write down what you know your God has spoken to you about your life and your family that was not given to you by anyone else but him. So the gift is you're going to come over here and get a white sheet of paper. You're going to grab a white sheet of paper and then throughout the week you're going to pray. And you're going to remember all of the things that God spoke to you. Not what your team spoke about you. Not what the past. I mean, it's good. Pastors have spoken some amazing things to us, and they, they have vision. Good. But you're going to write down what God spoke to you about who he is to you, about who you are to him, and about what he wants you to accomplish in your life. And you're going to take that sheet of paper, and you're going to carry it with you. You're going to carry it with your stones. You're going to carry it with your Bible. You're going to look at it every single day, and you're going to pray over it. You're going to take this white sheet of paper, and you're going to back your bow with this. You're going to remind yourself, this is who I'm called to be, and if God said it, he can perform it inside of me. This is what he said he is to me, therefore, I'm going to ask him what he wants me to do in light of what I know about him. If we all do that together, then we can become the bow and the arrows at the same time that are firing into this area of the world because we're becoming men who know the next right sacrifice we need to make. Y'all want to do that together? Then as the worship team prays, if you need to come and make a commitment to the Lord to crucify fears and insecurity, to crucify inadequacies that you think are keeping you from God's will, if you need to come and crucify pride that causes you to be self-reliant, come. Make a commitment to seek his face every day and then grab a sheet of paper and we're going to back our bows together. Amen? Say so you have confidence that if you seek his face, he'll answer. Yes! Otherwise, why would you be here? Let's just have a little chat. First of all, from all that time of living in an assisted living home. I can barely see you guys. So, Sambu, turn on the lights. You guys have a quick seat. The reason I say, why else would you be here? Is it to be a part of the living and active body of Christ? And one like this one, it takes real revelation to be part of this body. I look around at every single one of your faces and I could name the moment when I saw the revelation enter into you that made you a part of our body. Y'all remember Marlon? Came hobbling here on crutches. Timely. He walked through the doors. He was hungry to know what holy masculinity looked like. And he showed up on the Sunday when that was the topic being preached. That morning he received real revelation. And his walk hasn't faltered since. I remember Chris Riosora. Walked in here and was in outer space of doctrine and theology. But he received real revelation within five minutes in worship that all of that space cadet scripture thought that he had needed real revelation here at the altar. 
and he rose up as a transformed man of God that is getting gems from the heaven that's blessing us with. I remember Damon when he came in. Not so much a humble guy at that point. But a few conversations on the couch and in the garage, I saw God begin to bring true humility in Damon. Now he's a man years after that has a life that is worthy building a home and a family. I remember Ray and Ruby. The jalapenos. Tom and Martha introduced me to them beginning a service, which Tom and Martha do an excellent job of making the gospel appealing and bringing them into this body. Within two seconds of looking at Ray and Ruby, I knew that this was going to take some work. You're talking a lot. You're saying very little, but the trouble's really with you. And my, 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 the transformed couple that they are today. The list goes on and on. And just to speak as family. The message you heard tonight is a timely and eternal message. It is at the core of who we have been as LCM and truth be told, who we have been as men of God since day one. It's what's built our lives. It's what's built our unity. It's what's built ministries out of this place. Here's where the confidence comes from. And to reiterate what these men so excellently shared with us. It's your responsibility to hear from God. That belongs to you and not to everyone else. As pastors and as brothers, here's what we do on our part. And you experience this in your team unity meetings or just a conversation before, during, or after church. Is that what you experience is a challenge. And I know many of you don't like to be challenged. But you're going to have to learn to love it. Because that challenge is for your benefit. It's not for your condemnation. It's not for your disqualification. Just as the presence of God in a burning bush was challenging the heart of Moses, the same thing happens between us. And that challenge is really to seek the outcome of what, what you just said, what you're standing on, is that authentically a real revelation from God. Amen. And when it's not proved to be, you have brothers next to you to help you Find that revelation to spur you to seek God's face just as these men declared tonight. So that then you can go to the throne room of God, hear his voice, and come back with something that's of the substance of heaven. And that we can get behind. See, what we do as brothers and what we do as pastors is that we challenge so that we can confirm what you've already received. What you need to get into your soul is this. If you trust the I am who I am, then you can trust that he chose you because you are also whatever you are. You take confidence in your identity that's there. How do you do that? What these men went through uh, tonight and gave you some clear direction with these gifts of a blank sheet of paper. Is that you have to stand up and face your fear. You have to actually face those paralyzing fears, those overwhelming insecurities 
that are robbing your confidence of God's identity and real revelation inside of you. By facing them, here's what you're doing to begin to crush them. You esteem that God is able higher than what your fears and insecurities say. Nope, nope. I'm not going to give any amount of attention to this thought of my own inadequacy. I'm going to esteem that God is able to do what he said he would do. Has his word ever failed? No, not one promise has ever failed. Has his word ever failed for you? No, no, it hasn't. So we have to shut up the lies on the inside that tell us that we're not qualified. And we have to believe the truth of what the word says about God's character and who he is to us. You know, the men said tonight that if a man gave you your identity or gave you real revelation, then a man can take it away. You know who is the greatest opponent as that man? You. It's your own internal thoughts. So it starts with a meditation on his word and a pursuit of his face. Real revelation results in real humility that's coupled with real confidence. So like the men said tonight, we can't say it's humility when we're self-mortifying and want someone else to do what God has said for us to do. Better yet, for someone else to be what God said for us to be. And we can't super inflate ourselves to mask over our fear and insecurities and say that we should be doing a task that God has told somebody else to do. So here's how we start to get, get real with this. Sound booth, you, you guys can turn if you want, but sound booth, put up Acts 26, verse 15. This is uh, Paul's recounting of his conversion, right? And in encountering the manifest presence of Yeshua himself and Jesus directly challenging him, Saul, Saul, why do you kick against the goats? Paul has the right response. And I said, who are you, Lord? See, what didn't come out of him is who am I? He had that right heart posture. Although he was persecuting the church, he had that heart posture that set in him a real revelation that at this moment in Acts 26, he's standing before governing authorities and testifying about the gospel. And the Lord said to him, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting, but rise and stand upon your feet. For I have appeared, I've given you real revelation for this purpose. To appoint you as a servant and witness to the things in which you have seen me and to those in which I will appear to you. We know Paul had a real revelation because we're still participating in the abundance of fruit that comes from it. Not only the epistles that he wrote, but the monumental change that he set in motion throughout the Middle East. And that's now carried over into our shores. 1 Corinthians 15, verse 9, it's a very it's a dear, dear passage to me because it's Paul's conclusion to learning who Jesus was to him. It says, for I am the least of the apostles and do not even deserve to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. Well, 
Isn't that what Jesus told him when he appeared to him on the road to Damascus? I am the one you're persecuting. Now, if he stopped right here and the whole epistle ends, it's complete self-mortification, and he does not rise and walk in his call that Jesus spoke to him. Verse 10 is a big, beautiful but. But by the grace of God, I am what I am. This is what it looks like to esteem how God is able higher than what your fears and inadequacies say that you cannot do. Amen. And look how it continues. And his grace to me was not without effect. No, I worked harder than all of them, yet not I, but the grace of God that was with me. Whether then it is I or they, meaning himself or the apostles, this is what we preach. And this is what you believe. See, real revelation, it brings about real humility, real confidence, and it produces true unity among brothers. There is no comparison. There is no faction. There is no competition. There is only completion. Yeah. Romans 4 is, I mean, sorry, uh, Psalm 4 is where these men started. And that's to offer right sacrifices that come from real revelation. While you're writing down these real revelations, you know what you're writing down? The very thing that Paul speaks about in 1 Corinthians 3.12. Now, if anyone builds on the foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hair, straw, each one's work will become manifest for the day will disclose it because it will be revealed with or by what? Fire. You know what we're really experiencing right now? The fire of God's authentic presence. It is able to burn away wood, hay, and straw and show us how to get gold, silver, and precious stones. So as a family, we're going to take this word seriously. We're going to set our face before God and get that real revelation that comes from him about who he is to us. Then we're going to stand on it and definitely not be afraid to share it. We're not going to put it in a... a some kind of fireproof lockbox and hope nobody reads it. We're going to stand confidently on it and be willing to share it at any time in any place because we trust that he is able to fulfill what he's already said. Amen. So like Acts 26, church, I want to tell you, rise. Stand to your feet on the inside and on the outside. Everyone say with a loud voice, he chose me. And he will finish his work in me. Let's join hands as a family. And our, our provincial big country pastor is going to pray for us. Father, we thank you, Lord, for choosing us, God. Lord, for taking dead men, Lord, and giving us purpose, Lord. Lord, for giving us a life, Lord, that we can be proud of, Lord from taking us from the miry clay, Lord, and lifting us up. God, we worship you, Lord. You are worthy, Lord, of this praise, God. Thank you for revealing to us, Lord, who you are. And thus, we get to reveal you to others, Father. This is how we get to live, Lord. And we want to live this way, Lord. Lord, that we didn't choose you, but you chose us, Lord. And it didn't even begin with us, Lord. Lord, you chose us, Lord, because there's a destination to hit. There's a great plan to hit, Father. 
And we do this joyfully, Lord. We love to be a part of this, God, as we put to death our flesh, Lord, so that you can get the glory that you deserve, King Jesus. Lord, we love you and we honor you, Lord, as one body. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Amen.